We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Gonna take it right It was straightforward to set up the new homeland for the Jews after the League of Nations approved putting the Balfour Declaration into effect. Step one, allow all Jews who want to go to Israel to go there without any restrictions. Make sure it's a safe, welcoming place. The British government did the opposite. Step two, stop Muslims from countries outside the British mandate entering into the new Jewish homeland and settling there. Secure the borders to stop Muslims illegally entering into the British Mandate. The French had done that for their new mandate adjoining the British Mandate. That didn't happen. Muslims poured into the proposed new Jewish homeland. The British said the French system of setting up identity passes was too hard, and they never tried. The British, well, they really did nothing to stop Muslims from outside their mandate from pouring into the country. In years to come, those Muslims who arrived after 1922 would claim to have lived in Palestine from time immemorial. They would become the Palestinian refugees who said they had been driven from their homes by the Jews. Step three, help the Jews set up the machinery for the new Jewish government so that when the time to create a new state arrived, they'd have no problems taking over. The British did the opposite. They put Muslims into key government positions, including the police, consulted with the Muslims on how many Jews should be allowed into Palestine, and followed what they said and enforced those numbers. The result was that the Jews were mostly kept out while illegal Muslim immigrants poured into the country without any attempt to stop them. It was going to be hard to get a majority of Jews in their homeland, which would trigger the end of the British mandate. The Americans had been confident that the British would do a good job creating the new Jewish homeland. At the peace talks, the American delegate had said the prophetic words, England as mandatory can be relied on to give the Jews the privileged position they should have without sacrificing the religious and property rights of non-Jews. They were prophetic in the way that many Prophecies are prophetic. What they said proved to be the opposite of the truth. The wartime British government was a Christian government aware of the biblical accounts of the Jews returning to their promised land. How this would begin the process leading to the end times. The post-war British government was a secular humanist government that didn't believe in those things. It believed in the romance of the noble Arab warrior that Lawrence of Arabia had told they were overwhelmingly and strongly anti-Semitic. They valued having control of that strategic part of the Middle East in their hands, something that would end if they discharged their duties under the mandate. Woodrow Wilson had wanted an end to colonialism, especially in the old empires that had lost the war. Their colonial possessions had to be transitioned to free countries 
and as quickly as possible. But after studying the facts, and with my nearly 40 years of experience as a commercial litigator in the Supreme Court of New South Wales and the Federal Court of Australia, I'm convinced that British policy in Palestine was to stall indefinitely or to see the abandonment of the plan to create a Jewish homeland. Over the next programs, beginning with this one, I'll share with you the facts about why I think that is the case. The final reason for the British stopping the Jewish homeland being established was that well, the Jews were too smart. But now I really have to introduce you to the man who started all of this fanatical Muslim hatred of the Jews, who did everything humanly possible to prevent the realisation of the Jewish homeland, hoped for and later realised. Everything happening today in Gaza, the West Bank, everything goes back to him as their daddy, Hajj Amin al-Husseini, simply known as the Mufti or the Grand Mufti. Earlier in the series I told you about the lie that particularly the Effendi, the Muslim notables, told about the Jews from the early 1900s, claiming that they were forcibly driving the poor Muslim farmers, the Fellahin, from their land. Part 10 covered off pretty well on that. The rich Muslims who owned most of the land in Palestine that wasn't owned by the government were selling it to the Jews after kicking off the peasant farmers. The Jews were being made to pay through the nose. Extortionate prices for what the Effendi could only see as wasteland. That was great news for the Effendi, but the problem with the Jews was that they were employing Muslims to work for them on their newly established farms and paying them proper wages, which the Effendi never did. That's partly how they got to be so rich. The Effendi started having to pay living wages too. So the Jews were a mixed blessing. The story that the Jews were forcibly taking land off the poor Muslim farmers is the first and foremost great lie that the anti-Semitics around the world always tell about the Jews returning to their holy land. They've been telling it for over a hundred years now and it never gets tired. So the story was that the Jews were forcibly taking land off Muslim farmers. This allegation was first made during the Ottoman Empire. It was the main excuse used by the Effendi to get the Ottoman Empire to put bans on Jews going back to their homeland. Until the second half of the 1960s, Palestinian only meant Jews. Palestine, the home of the Jews, Palestine. The Ottoman bans varied in how severe they were, but something like those bans were always being imposed and enforced. But even before World War I, it was a bit on the nose to be anti-Semitic. So wanting to keep the Jews out of their homeland was a bad look. The answer that the Muslims came up with, still used today, is to pretend that they weren't anti-Semitic. This claim seems to have possibly first been used in 1911 by an imaginative Muslim by the name of Rubay al-Khalidi. So many Muslims and left-wing folk today should show and give credit to him for this clever invention. He announced, I am not an anti-Semitic, but an anti-Zionist. When Rui Bey al-Khalidi said that, the distinction was aimed only at influencing the Jews. I'm not anti-Semitic, just anti-Zionist. Of course I'll sell my land to you. You're not a Zionist. As other non-Jews pointed out, the Masses were incapable of making the distinction between one Jew and another. Najib Nassar, an influential Arab writer, 
before the First World War, candidly said, there should be no distinction between Zionists and non-Zionists since all shared common goals, a homeland for the Jews. Even though the Mufti hadn't yet come to power, the style of anti-Semitism, the style the left in the West still use today, is called Muftism. Hajj Amin al-Husseini owns what that term stands for. He made it into the Marxist product it is today. So how did the Mufti come to be what he was? Well, he was born in Jerusalem in 1897. His worldview makes it obvious that he was educated according to very strict Islamic principles. He went to Cairo to do further studies, but he never finished them. He then went to Constantinople before joining the Ottoman army in 1910. He was assigned to an artillery school. Soon after the Balkan War, he completed cultural and religious studies in a Quranic school. He participated in the Pan-Arab Congress of Damascus in March 1920 that proclaimed the independence of Iraq under King Abdullah and of Syria under Faisal, one of the sons of Sharif Hussein of Mecca. The new kingdom of Syria announced that it included Palestine. The British by that stage weren't necessarily against that happening, but they were going to be given the responsibility for Palestine as a temporary part of their empire, as a mandate. So the British didn't recognise that claim. The French were going to be given the mandate over Syria and Lebanon, and they sent in their military forces to bring a quick end to Faisal's kingdom. With it, that path for Palestine came to an end. Since there had never been a state of Palestine, apart from the historic kingdom of the Jews. The Muslims in Palestine always had the dream of becoming a part of Syria. Syria, Lebanon and Palestine had all been a unit administered by the Ottoman Empire. The idea of the Jews getting their own nation was hateful to Hajj Ali Amin al-Husseini. With the collapse of Faisal's kingdom, Hajj Amin al-Husseini then joined an organisation dedicated to an anti-Jewish uprising in Palestine. He created various anti-British terrorist gangs and worked on a plan to physically eliminate all Zionist elements from the Southern Territory. The first of these measures appeared in the bloody four-day uprising over Easter 1920, which is covered in part 14 of this series. That uprising failed. Hajj Amin al-Husseini fled from Jerusalem to go into hiding in Transjordan to avoid serving his 10-year jail sentence ordered in his absence. He was convicted for his part in the Easter riots and sentenced to that jail term. The Muslims had killed six Jews, wounded 211 and raped many women. Hajj Amin al-Husseini had been the leader of the event that perpetrated these crimes. It was right and proper that he pay for those crimes. As a result of these riots, in July 1920, a civil governor arrived to end the British military government left over from the end of World War I. Lieutenant General Sir Louis Boys was removed. He was replaced by Lord Herbert Samuel. On the plus side, Samuel was a Zionist Jew. On the negative side, he wasn't up to the difficult, unique, demanding and historic task that he was charged with bringing about the creation of a Jewish homeland. He wasn't made of the right stuff for the job. Lloyd George, who had been the Prime Minister when the Balfour Declaration was issued, 
and the plans were made to create a Jewish homeland, said of the new governor, Samuel is rather weak. This was an understatement. Lieutenant General Boyes had brought in with him a lot of anti-Semitic British officials, many in the most important positions in Palestine. They continued in office after he left. Added to that was the important change made by the British government to the administrative arrangements back in London for looking after the British mandate. A new section called the Middle East Department was set up under the Colonial Office. At its head was Sir John Evelyn Schuckberg. Colonel Richard Meinhutzagen said of him, The atmosphere in the Colonial Office is definitely Hebrophobe, that is anti-Semitic, the worst offender being Schuckberg, who is head of the Middle East Department. On another occasion, Meinhutzagen said of Schuckberger that he was a man saturated with anti-Semitism. He loathes Zionism and the Jews. Evelyn Schuckberg, the son of this man, had written to his father John in 1937, saying, How can we risk prejudicing our whole position in the Arab world for the sake of Palestine? Schuckberg suffered from the arrogance, ignorance and blindness of the English when looking at the Middle East and the Muslims in particular, who they never understood. Schuckberg was one of the leaders of the movements in Britain that aimed to convince the government that it could maintain Britain's hold on the Middle East if it opposed Zionism. The naive belief was that England would earn the gratitude and loyalty of its new Arab subjects in Egypt, Iraq and the Gulf if it ended the notion of creating a Jewish homeland. The British had also a romantic view of the Arabs that Lawrence of Arabia had endowed them with, the mystique of the noble Arab warrior. There was no such thing. It was a myth. But there was also a more cynical drive at the bottom of the English motives in backing the Arabs over the Jews. The Jews were just too smart. They believed that the Muslims were a backward people who could be more easily controlled than the Jews and indefinitely manipulated to postpone demands for independence, as long as their disdain for Jews did not roll them into opposition to British domination. The new British Foreign Minister, Lord George Curzon, had the anti-Semitism as well as the muddled-headed and wrong British thinking that I've just talked about. In 1920, talking about the British mandate, he said, The mandate which reeks of Judaism in every paragraph and is inherently unfair to the local Arabs. Curzon illegally watered down the promises to the Jews in the Balfour Declaration and, more importantly, in the League of Nations mandate that required those provisions to be put into effect. Lord Curzon would tolerate a Jewish home, but no state then or later. That was his announced goal. It had no legal effect in overcoming what Britain had to do under the mandate. Hajj Amin al-Husseini clearly had all the British cards in his favour after the 1920 Easter riots. The riots were the only hiccup in his goal to end completely the Jewish state. His conviction for that insurrection and the deaths, rapes and injury it had brought about might in other circumstances have been a huge negative to him being the anointed one to have a large say in Palestine. But it turned out that this riot was seen favourably as a winning part of his curriculum vitae. So what happened next won't surprise you, but it must have been stunningly depressing for the Jews. 
On July 1920, Lord Herbert Samuel took over his responsibility of governing the British mandate from Lieutenant General Boyce. Colonel John Henry Patterson, who had led the Jewish battalions raised to help England in World War I, said, Boys went, but the system he implanted remained. The anti-Semitic officials that he brought with him into the country remained. The public servants and advisers that Lord Samuel had were the stacked deck against the Jews, left to him by Lieutenant General Boys. These people were warning Lord Samuel about the hatred that was growing against the British because of the Jews. The key positions to be held by people who weren't British that should have gone to the Jews to prepare them for when their homeland was formed, which the terms of the League of Nations mandate appointing Britain required, went instead to Muslims. These included key positions in the security services, as Lord Herbert Samuel disclosed in his book Unholy Memories. This was a recipe for disaster for the Jews. These agitators advising Lord Samuel successfully persuaded him to grant a special pardon to Hajj Amin al-Husseini for his most serious crimes of insurrection during the April 1920 riots. Just five months after the Easter riot, he was allowed to return to Palestine, where he immediately resumed organising and waging war against the creation of the Jewish state. Lord Samuel also pardoned others who had been charged and convicted of criminal offences during those riots. These included Zeev Jabotinsky for the crime of defending Jewish people from murder, physical violence, rape and destruction of their property in the absence of any British presence stopping that. The mayor of Jerusalem, Musa Qasem al-Husseini, a member of the al-Husseini family, had been sacked by Ronald Storrs following the Easter riots of 1920. He was replaced by Rageb Nashashibi. Rageb had represented Jerusalem in the Ottoman parliament. He was experienced in fighting against Zionism and regarded that role as one of his most important. Not long after the return of Hajj Amin al-Husseini in March 1921, his stepbrother, Mohammed Kamal al-Husseini, the Mufti of Palestine, died. Elections were held to find his replacement. Hajj Amin al-Husseini ran for the position. He ran a strong campaign and successfully ingratiated himself with religious, diplomatic and political dignitaries, along with all those who belonged to the powerful Husseini family. There were four candidates in all. The other three were all members of the Nashashibi clan. Hajj came fourth in the election but the election result was ignored, and Lord Herbert Samuel appointed him as the new Mufti. How did that happen? The election was overturned thanks to the anti-Semitic bureaucrats that Lieutenant General Boys had left behind. Although Hajj Amin al-Husseini lost the election, the anti-Zionist in Lord Samuel's administration got Lord Samuel to depose the actual winner and appoint instead Hajj Amin al-Husseini as Mufti. Lord Samuel was talked into believing that Hajj Amin alone represented Palestinian Arabs and made that appointment. The legality of doing that is not clear. Lord Samuel had been introduced to the Mufti by Ronald Storrs before he overturned the election. Hajj Amin al-Husseini was then just 26 years old, but he impressed Lord Samuel. The mayor's nephew, Nasser Reddin Nashashibi, 
described Haj Amin al-Husseini as soft, intelligent, well-educated, well-dressed, with a shiny smile, fair hair, blue eyes, red beard, and a wry sense of humor. Husseini asked Samuel, which do you prefer, an avowed opponent or an unsound friend? Samuel replied, an avowed opponent. Lord Samuel appointed Hajj Amin al-Husseini as Mufti. Husseini turned out to be, in the words of the Lebanese historian Gilbert Akkar, a megalomaniac who presented himself as the leader of the whole Islamic world. If I'm right in believing that the anti-Semitic people in the British government wanted to make sure that the Jewish homeland never came into existence, they were now in a pretty good position to get what they wanted. Only one more thing had to be done, and that was really important, but mainly just a formality. Hajj Amin al-Husseini, the man who had been one of the key leaders of the Easter 1920 anti-Semitic riots, along with his relative, the now deposed mayor of Jerusalem, another supporter of the riots, were now almost in the most important position to shape and control the Muslim community in Palestine, to oppose with violence the creation of the Jewish homeland. Colonel Richard Meinertzagen, in his Middle East diary, wrote of the new Mufti, He hates both Jews and British. His appointment is sheer madness. This seems to have been something the British never really came to grips with, that the Muslims didn't like them. Probably first because at one level they were Christians and not Muslims. In part two of this series I talked about what the Muslims called people of the book. They share some of the same things in their religion of Judaism and Christianity, such as Abraham. But these British people, who were trying to stop a Jewish state ever being formed, were secular humanists. They didn't believe in God. They were the most despised category to the Muslims, heathens. But there was another honour that Lord Samuel was going to add to this man that would cement his position as the spiritual leader of the Palestinian Muslims. Lord Samuel appointed Hajj Amin al-Husseini as the Grand Mufti for life and the President of the Supreme Muslim Council. The Grand Mufti was now armed with everything he would need to derail the planned creation of the Jewish homeland. At least, that seemed to be the case. Over the next few programs, I'm going to track the trail of destruction that the Grand Mufti would leave in his path wielding the power and the prestige that the British had given him. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Kulzberg slogan for their beer. If you missed this program, you can catch up with it as a podcast on Spotify, Apple, and many other sites. Search for The Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close bracket. And if you like this program, you'll definitely love my other program, CYKIAE, also available on the same podcast sites. <laughs>